Evolving Your Design Mindset, Episode 12. Guardian down! Guardian down! Happy Friday, my friends, ziglets, nerds, and geeks alike. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real-world context around technology. It's Friday once again, and boy, do I have an outstanding show for you today. Before I get too ahead of myself, I am Michael Ziga, also known as Zig in this amazing community, and I am your host. You can find me on Twitter at Michael underscore Ziga. Go ahead and follow me. You can follow this show and all ZigBits content by following our Twitter account at ZigBits. Please do take a minute to follow it if you want to stay updated on everything ZigBits related. Before we get into any of the meat today, I do want to call out a new subscriber spotlight. Amir, you've given some feedback in the past. Uh, You have given, uh, I think, an iTunes review already. And and you have given me even more comments and and feedback. And I wanted to share that with everyone else that's listening today so they can hear and kind of uh, understand what it really means to me. And and I think it means so much more to this community. So I'm going to read what Amir said word from word the other day in in, uh, Cisco spark chat so hi michael thanks for the nice episode for the network design but why and the zigbits networks you inspired me to start my podcast roundtable as well about network design and cisco technologies amir i am so honored humbled and appreciated by your kind words and feedback my words can't even explain how what you have said inspires me To be able to inspire you, to mentor you, and guide you through your own journey as as you begin it means so much more than anything else. Uh, Money or popularity or anything else. That means more than anything. Uh, It is by far one of the core reasons why I started this podcast, why I started trying to give back to this community. Um, and and I, I just want to tell you that I appreciate you. And with all my heart, I thank you for all that you've done so far for me and this community. For everyone else out there, if you are in need of a mentor, if you need guidance, uh, career guidance, network design guidance, IT guidance, if you just want to talk to someone and discuss things, if you have a question, if you want to participate, you can email me directly via feedback at zigbits.tech. You can leave a review on iTunes. You can even tweet at zigbits and I will read it um, and I will most likely respond. Maybe you will be in a subscriber spotlight in the next episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast. You never know. All right, so now for the meat and potatoes. <laughs> in our last episode, episode 11, which was called Network Design But Why, we spent a good amount of time going, o- going over, excuse me, I'm stepping over my words again today. So we spent a good amount of time going over why you should care about network design. Why is it so important for you to make technical decisions to meet business needs? Uh, 
If you haven't listened to this episode, if you haven't listened to episode 11, I highly recommend you do so. Um, as you got feedback from Amir above, it, it's inspiring him to do something on his own. It, it's getting him to want to do stuff too. And I, I imagine it'll, it'll hopefully it'll change the way you think. And maybe you can give me some feedback on that. I, that. That's what we're going for here. So if you haven't taken a minute or a few minutes, I think it was a 30-minute episode, go listen to episode 11. Um, I will do a short kind of summer, summary. I'll summarize a little bit of what we went over um, as today's episode is going to tie into episode 11. You can find it at zigbits.tech/11. Here we go. Near the beginning of episode 11, we went over the different types of design, at least from my perspective, as I was trying to articulate the the different types of design. So we, we focused on the first two, and there's a third one that we didn't get into, and today that is what we're going to be discussing, is really the third, the third type. But from a summarization perspective, type one is the tactical design decisions. So these are situations that, that don't happen often anymore. They were frequent years ago when hardware uh, switches and routers did not have a lot of memory or CPU. Um, They didn't have a lot of memory or high-powered CPUs. We as network designers, the network architects, network engineers, we had to build solutions, again, tactical solutions, that would reduce the amount of resources the routers were utilizing. So like, for instance, the protocols, OSPF, maybe we are doing some sort of link state database design to reduce the uh, OSPF database, for instance, make it smaller so that it it doesn't store as much space in memory, for instance. And that would save resources so we could run more features and more functionality on these routers and switches. That, that at a high level is what type one was. I think I had a few other examples in episode 11. So moving over to type two, type two of the types of design the way I am trying to break them down, um, type two is the worst in my eyes. It is there no design thought process at all. It's more of a a maybe a fake or a um, imposture uh, design thought process. So this is where you have cases like you're building out a CCI lab in your corporate network, and there's no need for whatever you're building out. You're doing it because you're learning the technology. For instance, maybe you're needing to learn, um, maybe you're fooling around with BGP, and you're wanting to understand what local preference does. Maybe you don't know what local preference does. And so at your internet layer, you change some specific routes to prefer maybe one of your routers over another router, you know? And you don't need to do that in your corporate world, right? You don't, and that's small. It's a small change. Um, maybe you're implementing MPLS traffic engineering tunnels, but you have no need for it. You don't even need traffic engineer uh, uh, to enable traffic engineering, but you have to, you know, you're trying to learn traffic engineering tunnels, so you implement it in your corporate network. And I have seen this, and sadly, I've been part of this. I've done it for the first use case I gave you there. I have done it, uh, local um, preference on uh, the internet edge. I have actually done that um, to test it. I've broken that rule myself. That That's part of it. There's also like doing straight product migrations without understanding requirements. There is picking a technology because it's the next high-speed shiny new thing it's it's got rainbows and glitters and butterflies and unicorns and all that stuff and it's you know 
uh, for example, maybe leaf spine architectures, or you know, maybe you're uh, uh, you follow Cisco 100% and you want to do software-defined access, right? But maybe you don't need it. Maybe there's not a requirement for you to have it today. So that's what Type Two is. And I went a little long on that. So that's Type Two. So moving into Type Three, which we haven't gone over, and that's this is what this episode is all about. Again, today's title of the episode is Evolving Your Design Mindset. Uh, type three is business design decisions. So three word summarization there on what it, at a high level a title, but what that really means is you're focusing on the business side of the house and you're designing and making decisions or design decisions because of business needs or business requirements or business constraints or a combination thereof. That is what you are doing. Follow on to that, and we'll, we will harp this over the next few episodes. It is going to be a series. Don't think that we're going to skim over this or gloss over this. There's a lot of points in these episodes uh, or these shows and these topics that we will come back to and dive deeper into. Um, this isn't something that's going to be five episodes and we're done. We're going to be talking about this stuff for a long period of time. I went serious there for a minute. What makes a good design? And before I answer this, right, and I have a lot going on this this specific question, I would love to hear how you personally determine what makes your designs good. What what how do you validate your design? What do you base it on? I would love to hear that feedback. If you could send me um, your feedback to feedback at zigbits.tech, I would love to hear it. Um, maybe we'd have questions and answers, you name it. I would love to get that feedback so I can understand your perspective on how you validate your designs, how you make sure they are good designs. And, and maybe you don't. I know I was, when I was beginning in the industry, I didn't validate my designs. Maybe it's not bad, but maybe it is. I was one of those people that, that followed Cisco validated design documents to a T even if it broke things. So there, there's some, some thoughts there, right? And, and, and I am putting myself out there, um, negative and positive all the way. Again, what makes a good design? Send me your, your, your thoughts, your feedbacks on that. Again, it's feedback at zippets.tech. How do you know what you have as a good design? How can you grade a design? And grade is in air quotes. How can you grade a design if you do not have a grading sheet, a criteria sheet? Um, And in some cases, I'll even call this like a blueprint or some sort of blueprint. How can you actually grade a design? That's the question. Let's start out with some examples. And these these might be a little basic, um, simple examples. Why do we, as a community, the majority of the community, enable an OSPF interface as a point-to-point interface. And again, this is a simple technology thing. Majority of us probably do this, force a habit, not even thinking about it. Why do we do this? The traditional answer is that we are trying to make OSPF converge quicker. The more technical answer is that when we enable the interface as a point-to-point interface, it eliminates the DR election. So that that kind of waiting time 
that we normally have to do when it's not a point-to-point interface is no longer needed. And so the neighborship comes up quicker, right? It comes up faster than it normally would. So that is traditionally why we enable it because a lot of us want that, that neighborship to come up quicker even if we're building it out from scratch or in a production environment and there is an outage, we want those interfaces to come up quicker and not wait that, that timeout period or the DR election process, right? With the, the background theory and the background information about OSPF interfaces and, and how a point-to-point interface works, are you doing this? Are you making this choice because of a business requirement? Are you following a business requirement? That's the question I ask. That question may not be the right question for this simple example. Possibly or probably a better question to ask and answer for yourself. Are you breaking a business requirement by doing this? You know, you could be breaking a business requirement or you might not be. This is a very simple question to ask and answer. And and honestly, this specific question or example is unrealistic, right? It's... The benefit versus risk ratio is positive, right? The benefit is a lot higher than the risk to enable an interface as a point-to-point interface. What I mean by that is the risk of doing it is very minor or minimal. There is no risk. And the benefit is very high or greater than the overall risk. So in this specific sample example, whatever sample example I'm rhyming now, awesome. This is probably fine to just do it unless there's some specific OSPF design that you can't do point-to-point interfaces on. There's really not a risk from a, a complexity perspective or any other requirement perspective. So let's let's go to a, a second example that will be more complex, a little harder, and it made me fit this specific use case a little bit better. So what about implementing sub-second failover of an IGP, OSPF or EIGRP, um, let's say OSPF, a sub-second failover of, of OSPF versus less than five-second failover. So once again, I ask this question then, do you have a business requirement for it, right? So sub-second failover is very different than, you know, five-second failover. And five-second failover is just a placeholder. It can be one second. What I'm trying to get there is leave the defaults versus implementing sub-second failover, okay? That, that's that's the concept. It's really, it's a loose question. Just trying to get that. Do you have a business requirement for it? And then, maybe a better question, are you breaking a business requirement by doing this? Those questions you should be asking and answering, right? Because if you implement sub-second failover of an IGP, in this case, OSPF, you are also adding a high level of complexity or a higher level of complexity to the overall design than you had before, right? So if you build out OSPF and don't do sub-second failover, you are just using default timers. Um, you know, maybe the failover failure uh, failover is one second, maybe it's five seconds, but there's no complexity, right? It is the way it's always been and it's going to work. Now, when you go to implement sub-second failover and however you're doing that, whatever the actual requirement is, again, if there's a requirement for you to do this, then you might be doing actual maybe fast hellos. You might be doing 
Oh man, and, and there's a lot of complexity with fast to lows depending on how fast you make them. You could be running LFAs. If you're running something more even complex than that, if you're running like an MPLS network, now you're talking about maybe doing MPLS traffic engineering tunnels, and, and that gets even more complex. And, and this may be fine. This may be okay for your company, your business, but it, it has to be a requirement. That level of complexity has to be a requirement. And if it's not a requirement, then it's really not needed. That's where I'm getting at here. Think of it like, let's say in a hypothetical situ- hypothetical situation, you are the lead engineer of a, of a team on a, corp- on a commercial company, maybe a SaaS provider or whatever. You are the lead engineer. You have, you know, maybe you have multiple CCIEs. You've been in the industry, I don't know, 20 years. This hypothetical situation is getting pretty long, right? But you have a solution to implement sub-second failover, and it's fairly complex. But your team consists of all junior engineers, all junior network engineers. Maybe they maybe they have their you know their associates level certification and whatever vendor, Cisco or Juniper or whatever. But they've never touched you know sub-second failover. So when you when you're done implementing your solution be it that it meets the business needs or it doesn't, your, does your team know how to support it? These are all attributes or constraints that you have to think about when you're designing a solution, when you're designing and even implementing a solution. And that, that's where we're going to get into the turning point here and what I'm trying to say. Let's take a, a step back, maybe a, a leap back. I don't know if it's a step back. So let's go to an abstraction level. Let's get a little higher and let's go to an abstraction layer. And I'm going to ask a question and then have an answer to the question. So what is a design mindset? Again, the title of this episode is Evolving Your Design Mindset. So what is a design mindset? We've been talking about what types of designs there are, right? Types of ways of designing, type one, type two, and type three. But what is a design mindset? How should your mind function and interact? How should your mind process and prioritize and compare and analyze? So once again, what is a design mindset? My definition over 17 years in this field, in this career path, in this world of IT and networking and servers and whatnot, this is my take on this, but I will have a caveat that I will... Reserve the right to continue modifying this if I believe it needs to be modified, changed, adjusted, etc. So take that with, you know, however you want to take it, specifically you, how you want to take it, because this is something I put together in my own words. It's a definition. It's a framework. What is a design mindset? A contextual framework focused on the overall solution by analyzing and comparing a determined list of requirements. Again, it's an abstracted view of what a design mindset should be. I reserve the right to add to it, modify, tweak it, and it might change over the years. And it might evolve even more than it has. But that is what I came up with. That is what I've been preaching for the last couple years. What does this mean, right? And I'm going to repeat it one more time. A contextual framework focused on the overall solution by analyzing and comparing a determined list of requirements. 
And what does this mean? So this framework is, it's not a technical problem-solving framework. And what I say by that, a technical problem-solving framework is what we traditionally have done over the years. We are brought in the last possible minute to fix something, to put a Band-Aid, to make something work, and we had no idea that was even happening. A lot of my cases, it's the worst possible solution. Static routes, policy-based routing, double natting, carry grade natting. I, I mean, the list could go on and on, right? So those, those are the technical problem-solving framework. That is what we've traditionally done. That is a tactical approach. What this framework is, is a business solution-focused framework. We're talking about the business solution side of the house. And this is a strategic-minded framework. It's a strategic thought process. And it's, again, it's business-focused. So I hope that that resonates. I hope that makes sense. What this is also doing, this framework is building and morphing you and the process into a consultative approach. And some people throw that term around. Some people use it more in the reseller space. But I, I mean this can fit in any space, be it commercial, be it you're, you work at a commercial company, you work at a vendor, uh, you work at a reseller. You can utilize this mindset and process and change the way you interact with departments and organizations and customers and vendors alike and make it more consultative. Make it Start making it that consultative approach. Like I said, it doesn't matter if you are part of a commercial company or part of a vendor or part of a reseller. You can focus on being a consultative engineer, a trusted advisor to your business. And I could do a full episode on this just on consultative approach, and I plan to in the future. This approach, this framework, and this this design mindset, we have to be partnering up with business stakeholders and we have to be building the relationships we can no longer be on our keyboards in a cubicle pounding at the keyboard trying to get stuff done we have to make this change or we may not have careers i mean that that's the outcome with everything going on in the industry and that's another topic we can discuss in another episode but you know what what's the landscape look like over the next 5 10 15 years we have to embrace this consultative approach. We have to embrace this design mindset and this design framework. And if you have any suggestions on my framework, by all means, you send them to me. Again, send anything to feedback at zigbits.tech. That email box is open and I will receive it and I will reply. And depending on what you send, it might even be part of an episode in the future. So moving on, to still on the same, still on this framework, right? And I want to make it clear, this framework is the structure. It is the blueprint that makes design valid. You, you get a list of requirements, however you get that list of requirements. Again, we will discuss that in the future. But you get a list of requirements and you can validate your design based on those list of requirements. You can say, hey, my design meets these three priority requirements. It meets these two kind of priority requirements, and then it meets these other five not priority requirements. You can actually match the technical decisions you are making to each of the requirements that you have in your requirements list. And that is a key point to validate your design. 
your your network design, your your architecture, whatever it may be. And this can be any design. This framework is at an abstracted layer in a way so you can use it for anything you are designing. This doesn't have to be network design specific. We all work in networking or IT, and I wanted to make the framework agnostic to what we do. So this framework, you bring it up at a higher level. You take you take a leap at a higher le- level, and that framework can be utilized there. And that is the concept that I'm hoping you can get. I'm hoping it resonates with you. The focus within this framework is understanding the overall requirements, whatever they may actually be. As you go through things and as you determine the requirements and you have this list of requirements, you have to understand them both from a business perspective and a technology perspective. You need to be able to fully understand the business requirements. And and here's a key, both explicit and illicit business requirements. And we will get to that in the future. This framework is a formula and it takes a list of requirements as an input to build a valid design, a good design that ties back to those requirements. Some examples. Let's let's assume, or let's let's hide another hypothetical situation, right? You are tasked with designing a car. But what if you didn't know you were making a car? How do you know it's a car unless it's a requirement that it's a car? What if you didn't know it was a car? How would you know it needed to drive? How many wheels would you need to put on the car? How would you know it needs to have a windshield or windows? Let's just say, to keep it short, you designed and built the car, but then found out it needed to float in the water. What do you do now? I don't know about you, but I can't even guess as to how many times in my career my career man i am tripping over these words today i don't know about you but i can't even guess as to how many times in my career i've been in a situation like this once a network has been implemented we designed it we implemented it and then a week maybe two weeks the developers say my server needs layer two connectivity to function appropriately well I go back to my design and and we designed and implemented a layer three access layer and and developer servers in one access layer maybe and the other servers in another access layer. And so here we are again. And this is where you bang your head on a keyboard, right? This is where you throw your keyboard, you break your keyboard, you get mad, right? Because you spent all that time designing a solution or implementing a solution, implementing a solution, but now you get other requirements that, that, you didn't catch, you didn't ask, maybe you didn't even have the requirements and you just built what you wanted to build. I'm sure some of you, maybe most of you are saying this is kind of obvious, right? Or maybe you're saying this is easy. And maybe in this specific context of, of you know the car example um, that I just went over, it could be easy, right? But when you start to work on a network design, do you ask yourself, what are my requirements? Is that that because that should be your first question? What are my requirements? Where are my requirements? That should be your number one first question. Whenever someone comes up to you from any department, any organization, and, and 
that's a question for yourself. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a question for them. Because they may not know the requirements. You might have to figure them out. Moving into requirements, and just to give you some high-level requirements, here's some real-world requirements examples. And I've broken them up into three categories. There's business requirements, application requirements, and technical requirements. Business, an example business requirement would be the business is going to have a high growth over the next 10 years. Rapid growth, high growth over the next 10 years. So that doesn't mean it's a technical requirement initially. That is a business requirement. Maybe they're having a high growth over the next 10 years. So there's there's some aspects that you should take away from someone saying that in the business. We, we've been having a high growth over the next 10 years, and they'll have some sort of metrics usually associated with that. Um, maybe they have sales numbers, or they have office expansion numbers, um, employee addition, or new employee numbers every year. You name it. They're going to have some sort of metric that is uh, guiding that, that, that statement. Um, and you should look at it. And then from that, you could determine, okay, well, we need to have the flexibility to support that over the next 10 years. So we have to design a solution that maybe it needs to be modular, maybe pod, maybe a pod for specific sizes. And then if you exceed that size, you build a new pod, maybe a core. I think you get the idea. So the next one um, for a business requirement is if the network is offline, the business doesn't make any money. And honestly, this is becoming more of a assumed requirement, as I mentioned in the previous episode, episode 11. This is a an assumed requirement and no longer a an explicit or illicit requirement. This is a, no, the network has to work. It has to be online. It can't go down. And this happens all the time. This is, and users are getting so used to having the network. I mean, we have it at home. And if Netflix doesn't work, what do you do? But you assume your network's going to work at home. Just like users at, at a company assume the network's going to work. But again, the network is offline. The business doesn't make any money. So what does that mean? From a, te- from a business perspective, you transition that to a technical perspective. That means maybe you got to reduce your, number, your single points of failure to none. So those were the business requirements and examples of them. So now application requirements. And I have two for each of these, so I'll try to run through them pretty quick. Application requirements might be the company runs multiple 24-7 call centers. The application, there could be a number of applications, first off, in a call center. And then on top of that, it's 24-7. In most cases, a call center is a critical loca- a critical resource in the company that can't go down either. So you're, you're expecting a call center, voice, maybe video, and, and some critical call flow and workflow applications that have to be online all the time. And, and the company runs multiple locations. So you're talking a lot of requirements there just in that one word, that one statement right there. The critical business SaaS, software as a service application, handles credit card data. So this might be a compliance requirement, right? So if you're handling credit card data, you might have to encrypt the data um, in some fashion. Maybe it's an application encryption. Maybe you don't have to do anything on the network side, but maybe you do. Maybe the data has to be encrypted in, in transit. So now you have to run encryption between your your environments, your endpoints and your branches and your, your headquarters and etc. So that, that's where that comes from. 
And then the easiest area, and again, I didn't really say this at the beginning of this section, but the business requirements are the hardest to really get for us as technologists, as engineers. Business requirements, it's a leap for us to really grasp what they are and then how they interact or how what they actually influence on a technical perspective. That's what I'm here for. You know, that's what me and, and all the other network designers and architects out there are here for, is really to help you and guide you through that process. The application requirements are a little easier for us, but you might get one that says your developer says he's layer two connectivity between the servers. And if you get that, my first question is why? And I'd be like, okay, well, let's see it. Let's test it. Let's make sure. Let's validate it. All that is what you should be doing when you get a requirement. You should be validating the application requirements and the technical requirements and even the business requirements. Again, like I said, if a company says how high growth over the next 10 years, well, let's see the statistics of that. Let's validate it because we're going to be making a lot of decisions on the network side and the infrastructure side based on that one line. So let's, let's fully validate it. So application requirements is kind of like, easier than the business requirements but the easiest for us is technical requirements right this comes natural this is usually what we we go in asking first right it um for instance like we might be asking like what type of hardware do you have on your network what type of vendor hardware you know are you running juniper are you running cisco dell hp etc and you know maybe you'll get back oh today we're running a mixed a multiple you know mixed of multiple vendors so we're running maybe cisco and juniper today and then the next question that we all pretty much ask is, what are you running for routing? You know, are you running OSPF? Are you running EIGRP if you're a Cisco shop? Are you running ISIS for some reason? Or BGP everywhere? And, and, you know, maybe you'll get back, hey, we're running OSPF today. Those are technical requirements. So those are easy ones for us. And those are actually easy technical requirements as well, questions. And traditionally, it'll be a little bit more difficult, harder, or, or more detailed answers like what's the ospf topology today you know do you have is everything area zero do you have multiple areas how are you segmenting them out you know are you doing sham links with your provider are you doing any virtual links etc you you get pretty far and down in the weeds that is the requirements example section of this episode evolving your design mindset is such be having gone through it personally it is such an amazing process um it is such an amazing transition from what you what we do um legacy or traditionally to what we do which is more of a uh, maybe a new age way of designing solutions i hope it comes across I, i i think it does i am so passionate about this and i think it's extremely important for our industry to really embrace this and start understanding how to ask the questions and how to come up with the list of requirements and properly design a solution that meets those requirements for businesses and then also show the business the the value that the IT infrastructure has to that business. Not all businesses understand that value that we can provide for the business both indirectly and directly from a monetary perspective so it is extremely valuable for us to do that and i i think having that design mindset revelation or evolution you know evolving your design mindset having a framework around it i think this is so important i would love to have your feedback please send uh emails to feedback at zigbits.tech Hey, Ziglets, that's going to close out this episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast on 
Evolving Your Design Mindset. Yeah, baby! Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit zigbits.tech to join the conversation and access the show notes. The show notes for today's episode can be found at zigbits.tech slash 12. We're already at episode 12. If you liked today's episode, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world context, let us know. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn by searching for ZigBits. You can also send us an email to feedback at zigbits.tech. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide you with real-world context around technology. Bye for now.